the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. First off today, let's uh, concentrate a bit on the markets. I know a lot of people are feeling a bit nervous these days, and perhaps justifiably so. Uh, We've seen the markets just beaten up over the last many, many months related to not just inflationary fears, but also the increase, of course, in interest rates that while the Fed is attempting to try and cool inflation is perhaps having a chilling effect on the health of the economy. Now, there is some big news, and and I will with with great candor tell you that it's a bit of a, a mixed bag. First, Good news today, jobless claims are down for the fifth straight week in a row. In addition to that, the August producer price index, essentially the wholesale price, uh, they're related to inflation. Uh, they are now seeing the second straight month of less rates of inflation than had been anticipated. But a lot of this seems to right now, particularly in relationship to last week's 1,200 day or 1,200 point drop, uh, a lot of it seems to be turning on fears of investors that when the Fed meets next Wednesday and Thursday, that they're going to once again increase interest rates. Let's get more on this, and we've got some other things to uh, to talk about, too, related to Amazon being in the news, and not in a good way. I'll tell you more about that. Meanwhile, we welcome economist, public speaker, and, of course, the uh, publisher of the Affluence Investor Daily, Jerry Boyer. Jerry, it's always good to have you with us. Craig, it's always great to be with you. Let's uh, let's unpack a little bit of the the most recent news. Uh, boy, we we kind of had bated breath last week when we saw the points, uh, the, the Dow rather drop twelve hundred points in one day, and we've seen from the highs of pushing what was nearly thirty seven thousand, now uh, hovering barely uh, just above uh, thirty one thousand, making some folks nervous, particularly for those of us old enough to remember that the last time we saw over a period of time a 6,000-something point cumulative drop was clear back in 2008-2009, I think March of 2009, and it led to a pretty significant wallop on the economy. Now, certainly the numbers are higher these days, so there's less panic, but there are ongoing fears not only related to inflation, but what's the Fed going to do next week? What do you think? Yeah, a 6,000-point drop when it's 36,000 
you know, is a sixth. <laughs> when it's 18,000, it's a third. So 6,000 point drop is a little more tolerable now than it was uh, back then, but it's still a problem uh, and a pretty clear recessionary signal. Um, and I mean, it's been a tough, it's been a tough year. Um, it's been a tough month. Um, and it's really almost entirely driven by Fed policy. Um, and that's a problem. And I'm not saying it's a problem that Fed policy might be pushing us into a recession. I'm saying it's a problem that the Fed is this powerful. So the Fed is now overwhelmingly the largest player in markets and financial markets. In any given day, um, the, the big buyer, the biggest buyer or the biggest seller is our own government, our own central bank. It's managing money, uh, which gives it an incredible amount of power. That's problem number one. Problem number two is it's been given a contradictory dual mandate. Mandate one is, well, you need to fight inflation, which means you need to hike interest rates. Mandate two is, oh, we can't slow the economy down. We can't have a recession. We can't have high unemployment. So you need to lower interest rates. So every day, market participants, investors, people like you and me, um, whether we're pros or amateurs, uh, whatever, DIY, uh, we have to sit through the news and uh, every statistic that comes out, we have to ask, not necessarily is this good for the economy or bad for the economy or is this good for business or bad for business, but instead, the one question that matters is, how will the Fed interpret this? In other words, we use, we're looking at these chicken entrails to try to guess, not to try to understand the fundamentals of the economy, but to try to guess what big brother of money the Fed is going to do. And what happened is this week, we had an inflation report, which was worse than expected, which means the Fed was going to switch to the fight inflation mandate, which means they were going to be you know, hiking interest rates, they were going to be selling, and that drove down markets. Um, and, of course, when they do that, uh, when they're selling, when they're not putting money into the, into the credit system, tend to hurt markets. Not only does that push down the prices of investment assets, but it also is a signal that there isn't going to be enough credit. And that's why there's a relationship between falling markets and a bad economy. When the Fed tightens too much, not only does it drive down the stock market and the bond market along with it, but it also runs the risk of shrinking credit so that business has to cut back the very definition of a recession. You know, and, and I have to wonder, in a sense, if the Fed has kind of painted itself into its own corner here. I mean, you look back historically, and, and while we can certainly lay a lot of the current frustration over interest rates and the way the Fed is managing things squarely at the feet of, of Jerome Powell, uh, but uh, his predecessors, both Janet Yellen as well as Bernanke, and, and, and Bernanke, if I think, was kind of given credit for guiding us through the difficulties of 2008-2009, even though it was a painful experience across the board. Many people's retirement portfolios uh, took a big-time hit. Real estate, especially in, in now overheated markets like uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, took a real significant hit. And it just seems as if, you know, there's been this artificially low period of inflation that, uh, I mean, not inflation of interest rates, that 
that that maybe almost foolishly they had suppressed for so long instead of allowing the market to do what it does naturally and allowing some degree of, of natural ebb and flow uh, to take place. So now you've got, you know, all of this frothiness going on. And so, it, you know, is it any wonder that it's got uh, investors spooked and therefore the reason why we saw the 1,200 point drop last week? And I would suspect, as there's talk I'm hearing now, that when they meet to the Federal Open Market Committee meets next Wednesday and Thursday, they may potentially increase the overnight rate as high as another 75 basis points. Now, we've gone from what we're concerned about the Fed might do to what the Fed has actually done. What kind of a what blanket impact is that going to have on the long term health of the economy, do you think? Well, the the markets are answering that question right now. They're forward-looking, and the markets are voting that it's going to have a negative impact on the economy. And, you know, I'm glad you, you pointed out the you know, the interest rate suppression, the artificial stimulus, uh, you know, pushing down interest rates, uh, basically just, you know, um, buying, 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 driving up the price of assets uh, and creating new money to do it. Because in general, when people are evaluating these Fed chairmen, the Bernanke or whatever, right, um, they kind of look at how they handle the crisis, right? We have a crisis, and how much should they raise interest? How, if it's, things are really bad, how much should they lower to get us through the Great Recession, et cetera? And in my view, that is not the right time to be evaluating them. The real time frame to evaluate them isn't how they deal with the popping of the bubble, but the role that they played in creating the bubble in the first mm. place. If somebody makes a lot of terrible decisions, let's say somebody falls into addiction, for example, they have to make tough decisions, right? They might lose their house, they might lose their car, might lose a marriage, they, you know, they have to go into recovery, they have to make all sorts of difficult you know, decisions, and they're really painful ones, and there's no easy way out. The main, but the main thing is not to get addicted in the first place. The main thing is, and easy money is addictive, the main thing is to not engage in financial manipulation to avoid, say, a minor recession or something like that. The main thing is not to pump money into the economy so that we can get a 70% home ownership rate so some politician can brag about it, which gave us a housing bubble, which burst in the Great Recession. Um, the main thing is not to shut down the eco entire economy over COVID and then quadruple the money supply to make us feel better about that. The main thing is not to create the bubble in the first place so we don't have to deal with the you know sort of Hobson's choice of I don't know how do we get through it how much do we how much do we fight inflation and how much do we worry about not causing a recession because at at this point there are no good options every option has pain associated with it so the fed if the fed fights um, enough um, to beat inflation it has to cause a recession. If the Fed says a recession is intolerable, then it won't beat inflation. We, we, we no longer have a painless option ahead of us. And I do hope to God that next time, after we're through this crisis, we have the common sense to get the Fed back to its basic function, which is just to maintain the value of the dollar and not, not to monetarily micromanage business cycles. Yeah, you know, the irony, too, we think back to all of the debacle of 2000. 2008, 2009, with the real estate derivatives, uh, and then, of course, on the heels of that, 
creating interest rates and money so cheap that it was ridiculous. I mean, when 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 inflation is equal to the to the interest rate, uh, you know that that that's probably great while everybody is making money. But then, of course, we saw the government continue to borrow and spend, borrow and spend, borrow and spend, and you can afford paying off those loans at two percent. Now, when it reaches four, five, six percent, it becomes an entirely new ball game. And I I guess as we look at the current trajectory, I mean, we're we're halfway through the month. That means we're just two weeks shy of concluding the third quarter. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Jerry, but isn't kind of the 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 running definition of a recession is uh, marked by two consecutive quarters of high inflation and market downturn? Uh, you don't need the high inflation. Uh, that just makes it worse. Uh-huh. Uh, even if you just, even if you don't have the inflation, two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth is the dictionary definition of a recession. Um, it is the definition of a recession in futures contracts, and it is the legal definition of a recession. The Biden administration tried to say when we when they had their second quarter of negative growth, oh well, that's not really officially what a recession is. A recession is whatever the National Bureau of economic research says it is. No, that's not true. The dictionary and the law say otherwise. So we had a recession. The first six months of this year were a recession. Are we still in one or not? Well, we won't find out for sure. It might be that the third quarter were slightly positive. But, you know, this the market is acting like we're probably going to have another dip. So we can have like two months, uh, we can have two quarters of negative, one quarter of positive, and then another two quarters of negative. Um, and you know, that's actually a pretty reasonable outlook. And uh, honestly, I would rather have a short, sharp recession, pop the bubble, find the new level and get on with life rather than this just ongoing drip, drip, drip of high inflation and stagnation, um, something the Keynesians said was impossible until the 1970s, and they had to invent a new word for it, stagflation. Stagflation is exactly what we have now. And why do we have stagflation now like we did in the 70s? Because we have the same policy mix now that we had in the 70s. It's not bad luck. It's not weather systems. Certain policies lead to certain economic outcomes. A a Carter economics led to Carter's stagflation, and Biden economics lead to the Biden stagflation. Indeed so. And, of course, you you couple that with, uh, you know, this this great degree of which things turn on on either fear or greed, and and currently the meter is in the the fear category pretty solidly. Then you've got the artificial manipulation going on by the Fed and that sense of uneasiness out there. You know, Jerry, when I was a kid, and if I would, you know, out playing in the the park or whatever, wouldn't fall and skin my knee, and uh, Grandma would put the Band-Aid on when it was time for the Band-Aid to come off, it was always a desire to take it off nice and slowly. And my grandmother used to say, you know what? But my advice to you is let's take it off in one full swoop, one fell swoop, rather, so that you don't prolong the pain anymore. It might sting for a moment, but then it gets over with and you're on to recovery. And I'm afraid that a lot of folks here would would rather take the approach of pulling the Band-Aid off slowly, which, of course, only exacerbates and exaggerates the length of pain. And so that's kind of where we find ourselves. Jerry Bauer with us today. He is the publisher of Affluent Investor Daily Information available, by the way, on the web at affluentinvestor.com. We're unpacking issues related to current market trends, where things are for just the overall health and and well-being of the financial life 
of the average American. And uh, also uh, coming up in today's program, um, we're going to spend a little time talking about Amazon. They're back in the news. In fact, a couple of stories in the news, neither of which are very flattering. We'll get to details on that as our conversation continues, as Lifeline continues right here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Jerry Bauer, economist, best-selling author, and the publisher of Affluent Investor Daily is with us today. We're talking about what's going on in the world of money, the markets, and uh, boy, it almost takes a uh, scorecard to keep track of what's happening these days. And, you know, as we were referring to prior to the break, Jerry, in many respects, the, the, the this is kind of a artificially created mess that we're facing, not to suggest that the impact of COVID, supply chain issues, et cetera, et cetera, uh, was not something that not just we, but the nations across the planet have been dealing with. My goodness, I read uh, last week that uh, uh, the country of uh, the United Kingdom is dealing with like 11 percent inflation rate during the month of August. So, you know, there, there's a lot of pain out there to be sure. But a lot of it unique to the United States is really almost, um, I don't know if it's fair to say it is a uh, artificially created uh, crisis, but it, but it kind of leans on that in relationship to what's happened with, with Fed monetary policy, doesn't it? Yeah, they, these are self-inflicted wounds. Um, it's not fate you know, uh, that, that did this. Um, it's, it's something that we did to ourselves. Um, and, you know, I mean, we're still, you mentioned Britain, you know, 11% inflation. Britain's got a serious problem, and Europe has a serious problem. So we're probably still better off than most of the world. Um, but we're worse off than we should be. Uh, we don't have, we could be a lot better than the rest of the world. And in some sense, um, what's protecting us, and we're seeing this in markets, is even though we're making a lot of policy mistakes, and the, the chaos in other places is in some ways even worse. And so capital uh, is flowing here. Like, for instance, this week, we had a down market, but the global markets were down more. Um, and the same for last week. So uh, that causes some capital. So if you're a, if you're a, an investor anywhere on planet Earth, you know you have to you have to invest someplace, right? I mean, you, you, you're trying to provide for your future. And even if things don't look great in the United States, you also have to look around and say, but do they look better here than other places? And you look at Europe, which is essentially going to freeze uh, this winter because of an energy crisis that there's almost nothing they can do about. Um, and that's uh, that's bad energy policy that goes back a long way. That's bad regulatory policy that goes back a long way. And frankly, that's a mishandling of the eastern border to some degree. You know, a combination of provocation towards Russia, but also weakness. I mean, it's kind of the worst combination of scream loudly, but don't carry a big stick. Um, and then China, with their, you know, top-down control and their lies about COVID, and then COVID spread and then they have to shut down entire provinces. So the world is worse than us in general. And so that's propping us up. So my, my point is, our markets would be doing even worse. If we were just being graded on how well we're doing just in isolation, markets would be down more. But thankfully, to some degree, investors have to grade on a curve. They have to say, how well are we doing compared to the rest of the world? And the rest of the world is so bad.
bad now that actually we've got some capital flowing here. Otherwise, things with our inflation would, would be worse and our bear market would be worse. And so would our recession. Yeah, it's just an uncomfortable as they say, picture that's been painted here. And of course, sadly, the ones that are suffering the most is the little guy. It's the man or woman who has money in an IRA or a 401k and was looking forward to retiring maybe in the next year or two. That's probably, if not going to be uh, delayed, or if they proceed with it, they might end up retiring from one job and then, you know, getting the, the, the greeter position at Walmart or whatever in order to be able to supplement their income. And even as Social Security comes out and announces one of the largest cost of living increases in probably our lifetime, you might have to go back to the Carter years, perhaps, uh, to see the last time that they were talking about these numbers. But sadly, even to say, look at that, they're going to get grandma, grandpa's going to get 8% more next year. But when they consider the fact that under the Obama administration, they redefined the way in which Social Security Security calculates inflation by conveniently leaving out probably two of the most impacted categories by inflation, food and fuel. So if you never eat, never go anywhere, grandma and grandpa are going to be just fine. Aside from that, it's going to be a cold winter. Yeah, it is. It's going to be tough, um, and especially for retirees who don't have much margin. It's always people without margin who are hurt the most. When you have this kind of inflation and this kind of a recession, wealthy people don't change their lifestyle. They don't have to. They don't eat less. You know, they don't. You know, uh, they they you know they just have less. You have numbers on a spreadsheet, but the poor and middle class life actually changes. Um, so this really matters to them, which is why I think we're seeing a revolt at the uh, at the ballot box. Um, and here's the thing: you're talking about the cost of living adjustment for Social Security, okay? And there should be, right? I mean, we made promises to retirees, and their, their cost of living did go up, and it is a retirement program that's supposed to compensate them for that, but that has a budgetary impact. So Social Security, you know what? Social, what is Social Security trust fund? What does it own? It owns Treasury bonds. What's happened to Treasury bonds in the past year? Treasury bonds have gotten the living snot beat out of them. It is a very poor performing asset class. So the Social Security Administration has to pay more out because of the cost of living adjustments, but its value has been shrinking because it owns an asset class, treasury bonds, which have performed very poorly because of Fed policy. So if you're someone like me who believes that we have a demographic problem leading to a probable social security crisis, these events are an acceleration towards that crisis. We will hit that wall sooner because of the sell-off in treasury bonds and the cost of living adjustment, which increases the outflow from the Social Security Trust Fund. Wow. There's a mixed bag here, and it, as I said before, it takes a scorecard to keep track. Uh, one final question before we take a break, and then I want to uh, switch up our subject matter. Uh, your sense in terms of the meeting next week, Thursday and Wednesday, the Federal Open Market Committee will meet. I referenced earlier in my opening remarks the possibility of Potentially as much as 75 basis point increase. Uh, do you think it'll be that at least minimally? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the um, futures market, skin in the game, 
um, you know, markets are smarter than pundits, even though I'm a pundit. So I admit that. So I'm looking at the futures markets. I think 75 basis points is really, um, is, is, you know, the minimum. Given what happened with inflation this week, what happened this week is markets said, 75 basis point hike or maybe 100, inflation is still running pretty hot. So it's 75 or 100. If it's 100, that'll hurt, that'll hit markets. I'm not saying it shouldn't be. That might be the painful thing we need to do to withdraw from the morphine trip of easy money. Um, but, you know, that's still painful. But I would be very shocked if they did less than 75% or 75 basis point hike. So that being the case, that means it's going to cause not only a lot more money to buy a car, it's going to cost a lot more money to buy a home. Uh, the refund market, I think, uh, effectively at this juncture, if, if the final nail hasn't been driven in the coffin, the Fed will see to that next week. And then you're going to see, of course, a significant slowing. Now, this may help to decrease um, housing prices, particularly in overheated markets like the San Francisco Bay Area. But then if conversely, so the prices go down, but then the cost of borrowing money goes goes up, <laughs> you're kind of still in the same place in terms of real estate, you're aren't you? Ahead of, you're, right, you're not ahead of the game because what you pay is a mortgage. Like, you don't actually pay the value of your house. You pay you, you pay a number that's a calculation of the principal times the mortgage amount. So if mortgage rates rise and house prices lower to adjust to that, you're not ahead of the game. You're just, you're, you're just where you were before. You didn't gain anything. Ouch, ouch, ouch. Well, folks, uh, time to hang on to your wallets, to be sure, because it's going to be a bumpy ride. We're talking about all things related to the markets, the world of money. When we come back, I want to switch up the topic and talk a bit about Amazon. They've been in the news lately and not in a good way. What's it all about, Alfie? We'll find out next as our conversation with Jerry Boyer, the publisher of the Affluent Investor Daily, continues here on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You've heard me make a couple of references to Amazon and, and perhaps with bated breath wondering exactly what's going on. Well, a couple of things we can touch on. Uh, first, uh, news today that uh, Amazon's in a bit of hot water with the state of California. The state taking legal action against Amazon. A lawsuit filed against the retail giant for blocking price competition, causing increased prices on the platform. Now, apparently, Amazon had been requiring merchants to enter into exclusivity agreements that severely penalized them if their products were offered for a lower price anywhere else. Maybe you call that a modern-day form of old-fashioned price fixing. I don't know. But in addition to that bit of trouble, there's also a story in the news that is not getting as much coverage, but I I think is equally important. A lot of folks are perhaps aware of the fact that when you're an Amazon Prime member at checkout, you have opportunities to support your favorite charity. And I think something like a half percentage of your purchase is then given to or donated to the charity of your choice. And it's a pretty broad list of charities out there that folks can choose from. But suddenly now it seems as if... Amazon Smile program has decided not to smile, but instead frown on an organization that we have been very supportive of. You've heard the folks from Alliance Defending Freedom on this program many, many times. They are a religious freedom advocacy legal firm. They do all their work pro bono, and uh, they're getting a frown from Amazon. Tell us what's going on, Jerry. 
Well, that's what's going on. Um, and they've done it because the SPLPC um, has um, called uh, ADF a hate group. Uh, Research Council. Not, neither of those groups are hate groups, not remotely. They're very mainstream conservative Christian organizations. Uh, ADF in particular is very close to the judicial mainstream. How do I, how do I know? Because they've won so many Supreme Court cases. Um, even before, you know, some of the Trump appointees, they were winning um, federal cases. Uh, so very mainstream organization. Um, what happened is the Southern Poverty Law Center became a um, scapegoat per, per hire um, organization. You could go to them, write a big check if you wanted to get them to label some organization you don't like as a hate group, and that was that's all been exposed. The Atlantic, New York Times have talked about it. Um, so it started out as an organization opposed to the KKK um, and anti-African American groups, but pretty much they got to the point where any group which questioned the LBGDQ agenda. Could be uh, could be labeled a hate group, and of course they went after the effective groups. ADF has won a lot; they've been very effective. Booted them out of the Smile program. Um, I like the Smile program; we participate in it as Amazon customers. Uh, but to boot ADF out is a shame. Um, now ADF is doing something; they're kind of like doing something redemptive with this which is that they launched, I'm on an advisory board for this, they launched a viewpoint diversity survey where they're going out to 100 companies and then later larger numbers of companies with a survey that says, do you respect viewpoint diversity for your employees, for your, uh, for your suppliers, because Amazon's in trouble with its suppliers, uh, and also when it comes to product, if you're a social media company or you're a book sell seller or whatever, do you censor based on content? Uh, so they're deciding not just to go out and grumble in a corner, just to like fundraise on victimhood status. They're saying, oh, we understand now. We've been fighting in the courts, and I would say this to we conservative Christians in general. And while that was happening, the left and the ideological extremists took over the boardroom. We got to go back now and deal with the boardroom. And ADF is doing that, and a lot of other people are doing it as well. Um, and um, I think we can win there. We, we won in the courts. We won a lot with elections, and I think we can do even better. But we can't win if we don't show up and contest that ground. Absolutely. And, you know, Amazon is, you know, the 950-pound gorilla in any room. I don't care what the room is called. And, you know, just to look at this on the surface, uh, way back in the day, um, Southern Poverty Law Center did indeed help target organizations that were kind of running down below the radar screen that had ties to the KKK. I mean, really nasty hate groups that I think everybody and his brother, no matter what your political persuasion could come to the table and say, ah, yep, no, we all agree, that's a hate group. But to to lump an organization like Alliance Defending Freedom into that group, n not because they're promoting hate 
or racist policies, but but simply having a difference of political opinion or simply being that, well, they happen to be conservative where the board of directors and the leadership of Amazon happens to be liberal. And and then for the Southern Poverty Law Center to have the audacity to come in and characterize them as a hate group. I mean, that's just a field too far, in my opinion. It is. And let me be blunt about this. ADF, as far as I can tell, is protecting people from hate. That's right. Um, You know, these these people who go out there and say, bake the cake or lose your business. Right. Or you participate in our gay marriage as a photographer or 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 have your business taken away. That's hate because there are plenty of florists who will um, participate in a gay wedding. There are plenty of bakers who will do that. So what's happening is people who hate Christians are going out of their way not to get a cake baked, not to get photos taken, not to get a floral arrangement. I mean, for Pete's sake, you can definitely find people who will do floral arrangements for gay weddings. I assure you. But... You find someone who is an evangelical Christian, and they know they are, and they go in and make a non-good faith attempt to buy services, and then when that doesn't work, then they bring a legal complaint to put someone out of business. Now, who's the hater in that situation? Yeah, exactly. Honestly, and, you know, the, the, the irony person, is the person that... The person who says, listen, I'll bake a cake, but someone else can decorate it. I'll bake a cake for you, but somebody else has to do the writing. Oh, no, that's not good enough. Do this or or get you know, get fined a hundred thousand dollars and have your dream killed. I think we know who the hater is. Well, and you know the irony here too is you know good old fashioned capitalism used to look at this from the standpoint of if there's a, a firm or an organization out there that you don't want to do business with and you don't appreciate their policies or practices, the easiest way to send a message is to vote with your feet, meaning take your business somewhere else. You don't want to do business with me? Guess what? I don't want to do business with you either. And, you know, even the average restaurant has a right to maintain no shirt, no shoes, no service policy. So, yeah, it's it's really a field too far, and and it's sad that things have been taken in this direction. And I think you're right that uh, there needs needs to be some changes, not only in terms of the way consumers engage with organizations like this, but also in terms of who gets elected on these boards of directors and the kind of outlandish decisions that they are making. I mean, there was a day and an age when the average American corporation existed to produce a product, to find a need and fill it, and to provide jobs for people in a given community. It wasn't always about making political statements and engaging in degrees of ideology. You're manufacturing widgets. Just make the widget, sell the widget, and leave the politicking to the politicians. But uh, I, I guess that's not not good enough for them anymore. Jerry Bowyer, as we mentioned, is the publisher of Affluent Investor Daily. We invite you to get more information about Jerry's good work as well as this wonderful newsletter by going online to affluentinvestor.com. That's affluentinvestor.com. There's Jerry Boyer. Jerry, we appreciate your time. Coming up on 15 away from the hour, that means it's time for me to step aside for a moment, but don't go away. We've got more coming your way as Lifeline continues right here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
It is the largest and fastest growing segment of the United States population, typically called the baby boomer generation. Those of us born between 1946 and 1964, comprising some 80 million Americans, and our numbers are being added to by 10,000 every day. Imagine that 10,000 Americans hit retirement age every single day. As we experience the grain of America, the big question is, how do we go about capturing this amazing block of individuals, not only in terms of harnessing their, their collective talents and skills and ability and brain power and, and ministry abilities, but then, too, how can we most adequately minister to the needs of this growing sector of the population that, you know, as for all of us that are heading toward uh, the twilight years, you begin to think about the life that you've led, think about... Um, the shortness of the time that you have left and questions with regard to the the significance of your life and ultimately being heaven-bound. Insights on the issue of renewing ministry for and by seniors. We're joined tonight by Dr. Michael Parker. He is co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church. And uh, we appreciate so much uh, your time tonight, Dr. Parker, and being with us uh, to talk a bit about this important topic. Well, thank you. Your background includes that of adjunct associate professor of the Division of Geriatric Medicine and uh, Care, <clears throat> pardon me, at the Center for Aging at the University of Alabama in Burning, uh, Birmingham. We have, you mean you're, you're we, new- have, uh, we have two centers for aging here in Alabama, one affiliated with our medical school, and then we have a center for mental health and aging at the, at the University of Alabama. So UAB is actually a separate university with a you know very... Uh, and with an outstanding uh, department of uh, division of geriatric medicine, so I have a joint appointment. This background, of course, uniquely qualifies you to speak to this topic of uh, just how well churches are equipped in ministering to uh, not just the needs of the aging population, but then, as the book also suggests, uh, how to harness this amazing subset of our culture. I think that's part of the problem, if you want to call it a problem. I think it's a a wonderful gift from our Heavenly Father that he's given prolonged life, and yet it seems like we we haven't kept you know, captured that yet. And so what we want to do is is think about ministry from seniors first and then during that final season of life ministry to them. If you think about one demographic, it um, if you make it to 65 on average, and these are just general averages, but if you make it to 65 and you're a woman, you might live another, typically you'll live another 19 years. And four to five of those years might be years of dependency where you need some help. Uh, if you're a man, you, on average, you live uh, not quite as long, another 15 years, and three of those years might be years of dependency. Um, you know, Billy Graham has just written a book called uh, Nearing Home, and in the opening introduction, he, he writes, All my life I was taught how to die as a Christian, but no one ever taught me how I ought to live in the years before I die. I wish they had, because I'm an old man now, and believe it, it believe me, it's not easy. And I think that part of the problem is that uh, we need to capture that vision that we need our seniors. We want to issue a call out there and say we need you. And uh, and then there are very specific things over the 12 to 15 years that we've been doing research with congregations that 
can form the basis of a ministry. Um, but the, the basic idea is to have ministry from seniors. Um, it's interesting uh, how I became involved in, in geriatrics and gerontology. I actually was was on active duty, and uh, I was uh, assigned to Seventh Medical Command. I had great responsibilities. It was right in the middle of, uh, right in the beginning stages of Desert Storm, and my father passed away. And so I came back to the funeral, and when I flew back to Seventh Medical Command, they had a memorial service for my father. And I realized that a lot of my brothers and sisters in uniform um, had similar issues, you know, aging parent issues from a distance. And so I um, uncovered this wonderful National Institute of Aging Postdoctoral Fellowship at Michigan. I applied and got accepted. And then I had to apply, and then the Lord had to do some great things, and I had to apply for a long-term civilian training from the Army Medical Department, and I got that. And then as things wind down in the military, you have to kind of iron out your assignments a year out. And uh, my colleagues in psychiatry said, Parker, you're going to do a child and family fellowship at Walter Reed. And I said, well, I'm not I'm not going. <laughs> And uh, I want to go to Michigan, and and uh, and they, you know, basically said we're a young army, and and you're going to have to do the fellowship at Walter Reed, or you put your career in jeopardy. So somebody said I should go talk to my boss, and uh, this was a two-star general who had the weight of the world on him, and uh, we were responsible for medical care for Desert Storm, and. when I went in to see him, he mirrored the, the ideas of the you know psychiatrist, my colleagues, and then he said, "What are you going to do there?" And I said, "I'm going to you know thank you for coming to my father's memorial service," and I told him what I just shared with your listeners uh, that you know I was interested in studying caregiving and particularly distant caregiving, and his whole countenance changed. And he said, I just got a call from Iowa from my family priest. And he said, your mother is leaving the gas on the stove. What do you want to do? And you see, here you have um, captured in his story what's going on almost across the country nationwide, particularly for those who care for aging parents from a distance. And he said, you know, he wanted to honor his country with his service and that he'd been training all of his life for, and yet he wanted to honor his mother. Um, and uh, it, it's a it's a challenging, uh, significant life event that most people at midlife face, and it's something we need to prepare for. And so we talk a little about that in the book. And um, so that's how I got involved. Uh, he said, "Tell those gentlemen that you are going to Michigan." And the next day, you know, they congratulated me for sticking to my guns, and and off I went for a wonderful postdoc in Michigan, which changed my life, you know, and my professional trajectory so that's a quick intro into how i got into this you know the amazing thing is that we see so much focus these days on uh, health care issues for seniors and uh, approaching that aspect of the physical needs of uh, the the graying segment of american population yet there's so little spoken of when it comes to meeting to meeting the spiritual needs. And we're going to spend some time focusing on that when we come back after a brief timeout. Dr. Michael Parker is with us tonight as you hear a retired lieutenant colonel from the United States Army, serving now as associate professor at the School of Social Work 
and Mental Health and Aging, the University of Alabama, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. When we come back, how do you uniquely meet the spiritual needs of seniors? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 